This week I was watching uh, a bit of a cult classic, the Chomsky-Foucault debate between Noam Chomsky and Michel Foucault. 1971, good number of years before I was born. Fashion was not at a high ebb in the early 70s, apparently. Um, and it's in the Netherlands. Chomsky speaks English, then Foucault answers in French. One of the very interesting, th there's lots of things to learn from the Chomsky-Foucault debate. Uh, one of which is that scholarly pretension isn't additive, it multiplies. You get people together and the, there's an exponential growth in uh, pretension. But one of the things which was very interesting for me is, is having done a little bit of reading and thinking uh, and teaching on some of these issues, is this week listening to Foucault, where I really, for the first time, it, it sunk in, not just as sort of propositionally things that I understand in my mind, but it really struck me in my heart. Sort of the light went on, you know, like, got it. I've always known that people who are not believers, who are not operating from a biblical Christian worldview, are not just neutral to the biblical worldview. They're hostile towards it. And, and, and it's not just sort of the way you debate options. There's an animosity towards biblical revelation, biblical worldview, which you just don't have when it's just philosophical options that, that you're dialoguing about. One of the things that Foucault is saying as a, as a post-structuralist, you know, the, the, the structuralists are saying this. This might be important if we're going to know what comes after them. Uh, the structuralists are basically saying, if we use all sorts of uh, domains and spheres of social science, uh, natural science, uh, cultural studies, psychiatry, and we use these definitive methods in all different cultures. So we, we, we go all around the world and we study people through social categories, through the categories of sociology. We psychoanalyze people and we uh, boil down all that they believe. We'll be able to reduce all of the surface stuff to certain core uh, elements which are found embedded in all cultures, all traditions, all over the world. Okay? In other words, you will be able to work everything down to non-negotiable concrete structures that exist not just in individuals, but in every individual around the world. Not just in one culture, but all cultures. This is why they're called structuralists because they think you can reduce everything to definitive, overarching structures. Uh, some psychologists or, or psychiatrists would talk in terms of sort of psychoanalytical archetypes, right? There are certain archetypes which are over everything. There are certain cultural ideas which are metaphors which are foundational around the world. So we can clear out some of the, the overlay and boil things down to these essential structures. Post-structuralists post -structuralists like Foucault in his later years come along and they say, no, no, you can't do that. Actually, there is no such thing as concrete structures that inform everyone, that are embedded in every culture. All you have are uh, a bunch of fluctuating 
um, sort of amorphous uh, realities that are inherently subjective and are always changing in individuals. You so you lose personal identity at some level in individuals and also in cultures. Everything's in a state of flux. So because everything's in a state of flux, there obviously are no such thing as inherent essential structures in ways we think, in ways we do culture, in tradition. So the structuralists were saying, structure, post-structuralists come along and say, no. And Foucault, when he's debating Chomsky, is saying, listen. Well, he's not saying listen, because he's speaking in French. But basically, he's saying this. Uh, écoute means hear or listen. We have two uh, official languages in Canada. That's why I, I, I know so much French. Uh, écoute means, means listen. Now, hear this. Pay attention. Is listen. The reality is because there are no human structures, there is no human essence, okay? Because there's no human structure, everything's changing, there really is no such thing as human nature because humans are in flux, right? We're just, we're just changing. There's no such thing. There's no structure. There's no, nothing concrete in us. And so when it comes to ethics and we're talking about what's right and wrong, right or wrong for what? Right or wrong for who? There is nothing to which we can append ethics because everything's amorphous. There's nothing concrete or solid that you can say, human beings should act this way because they are like this. There's no structure there. Okay? Sam Harris, in his approach, is going to say basically this. Listen, if we can just dissect human anatomy, if we can just understand every state of affairs in the brain and in the body, so we're going to work from the human system as a, total, as a totality into sort of uh, microsystems, down to cellul cellular function, down to organic chemistry. We're going to break everything down into its particle. We're going to build everything back up into smaller systems and then larger systems until you get the whole human system, then locate that human system in culture, in this world, in this whole universe. Then we'll fully understand every fact, and if we can only understand every fact, as Harris says, we will have a perfect understanding of human ethics and morality, right? Both Foucault, who argues there is no human essence, and Harris, who argues that if you sort of break down everything and build everything up, you will find the human essence and therefore morality, they both will never, despite what Harris thinks, they will both never, never have any grounds for ethics at all. Because ethics do relate to what we are as creatures. But Foucault is completely wrong to think there is no unchanging human essence which is embedded in every single person. He's completely wrong. There is a deep human structure. And Harris, with his methodology, will examine every atom in the universe and how it all works together. And even if he had an exhaustive, descriptive, scientific understanding of that, he still wouldn't understand human nature and human essence. Because his methodology can never show you the most important fundamental fact of human nature. We are the image bearers of God. 
And you can study every atom and build every atom back up into a total system until you can describe every state of affairs in the material universe through material means, and you will miss reality. You will miss the way things really are. Foucault, no human essence, he's completely wrong. Harris, we can determine what human essence is through exhaustive scientific methodology, he's completely wrong. We were never designed to know, to think, to reason, to feel, to have ethics, to behave. We were never designed to do anything autonomously from God. And if we try to do that, no matter what our approach, we will always end up off the rails in our thinking, and we will always then lose all ground and warrant for asserting anything in terms of ethical right and wrong. The Bible, interestingly enough, really does save epistemology and ethics, and it's the only system on earth that does. Amazing. Well, inside of the Christian narrative, as inside of this Christian totalitarian system of thought, we see in the Sermon on the Mount, as we were talking about, that Jesus speaks with authority. He is the full authority. And we see this develop in all kinds of ways in Matthew and Fred. Uh, last night gave us just an excellent exposition uh, and uh, really excellent application as well in terms of the authority of Jesus Christ in the Great uh, Commission. So we then who hold to the Christian worldview are going to uh, agree. There's a sense in which, you know, last session is just preaching to the choir, right? We're all coming from basically the same perspective, I hope, in terms of these things. And so we're looking at uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and we're saying, yeah, we, don't, we here agree that Jesus is the authority. And if you, uh, last, yesterday said that Fred is his bodyguard, I'm going to say today that if you have a problem with Jesus being our authority, go talk to Fred. You know, he has something from the Gospel of Matthew uh, to tell you about that you need to listen uh, to very, very carefully. Now, Jesus is our authority, and hopefully we're going to not only recognize that, but hopefully we're going to be thrilled by that. Jesus is the authority. Jesus is my authority. He is your authority, whether you recognize it or not. So it's good to recognize it because he is the authority. We may as well rejoice in it. We may as well not fight him because he has full authority and full power. It's not a fight we're going to win through claiming the moral high ground, and it's not a fight we're going to win by overpowering him. So we may as well just embrace it and submit. He is the authority. He is omnipotent. He has might. He has right. And we praise God that Jesus exercises his might and right to forgive sinners like us. Amen. And then give us a job to do. Amazing is that what a privilege that we get to go. It's, it's, it is a command. It is an imperative because, uh, because of all the things Fred said about the Greek New Testament last night. You know, that was, all, that was all true, the things that he said about it. It's not whatever he said it wasn't. It is what he said that it is uh, because if you took more Greek, you'd know that, you know? And, and so we do need to go. It is an imperative. It is a command. And it is a rich and marvelous privilege. We get to go. Jesus is with us as we go. And we proclaim an authoritative message, not because there is authority intrinsic in me or in you. There is authority intrinsic in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so we speak with full authority, not because of who I am or who you are. We speak with full authority because of who Christ is. And we get to go and represent him to all the nations. And not only that, but as we go to all the nations, all of the powers in heaven and in hell also bear testimony, some by their defeat, some by their joy, that we bear the message of the conquering, authoritative, risen Lord Jesus Christ. That is an immense privilege. That is an immense blessing to be able to go. So we do. But in this Christian story of authority, I think we also recognize that in terms of the Christian perspectives, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' authoritative discourse, uh, is interpreted in many different ways some of which have entailments which nibble away at the special authority of Jesus, right? This is one of the reasons, of course, that we uh, look at New Covenant theology. And I'm not going to uh, get into this too much. There there really are, and I don't say this in in some sort of fake humility, like when Blake said he was a humble all-millennial and then took pot shots at pre-mills. I'm not not talking some sort of pseudo-humility. I'm talking about genuine humility, you know, the, the sort of thing I should write a book about. Uh, it, you know, it, I, don't even, I don't even remember my point now. I have no idea what I'm talking about. What am I talking about? No, I don't say this in humility. This is just an objective fact. It's sort of in the objectivist pool on this one. Uh, there, there are many people in this room who can unpack for you the dispensational interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount and who can unpack for you what covenant theologians historically and today uh, think when they come to the Sermon on the Mount. And there are are, are people here who have specialized in uh, New Covenant theology and biblical studies and exegesis of critical passages, and and they are simply, uh, in genuine humility, uh, they're simply much better qualified uh, to tell you uh, what those uh, critical texts are and to work through them uh, with you. So if there is any questions on any text like that, I'm going to defer to those people who I think uh, will do a better job uh, answering. However, we do know that there are all kinds of different interpretations of the Sermon on the Mount. It's involving, of course, right from the very beginning, the kingdom. Well, certainly there are many different interpretations of the kingdom of heaven. You know, what is the kingdom of heaven? What is Jesus talking about? Who is he talking to about this kingdom? How do we translate kingdom language today? Uh, how do we understand the concept that kingdom language brings about uh, for Jesus and for those uh, who hear him? And so whenever I, I'm sort of in a crisis of translation, what does Jesus really mean? Uh, I always uh, turn immediately to Brian McLaren. And so I follow that procedure, turn to Brian McLaren in his uh, book, A New Type of Christianity, or A New Kind of Christianity, or A New Christianity, I don't remember the title. Um, But he says this, talking about the kingdom. Kingdom can be translated today as peace revolution, new love economy, sacred ecosystem, beloved community or society, dream, dance, and movement. Now, if you think that's what Jesus means by kingdom, 
And if you think the Sermon on the Mount is his exposition of the kingdom, it, it, it might change your interpretation of authority. You know, Jesus is the authoritative dance partner, so follow his lead. You know, that kind of thing. I, I don't know. This combined with his exhaustive study of the Greek word for repent, repentance, and all that school of linguistic vocabulary. Repent is to think again or become pensive. And although he never combines this, I thought that we should do that because Jesus and John the Baptist both initially proclaim, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, or repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I'm just not sure of the adequacy of saying that John the Baptist's initial declaration and Jesus' first command should be properly translated as become pensive because God's sacred ecosystem is, is near. You know, it, it kind of loses some of the punch. You know, I, I, just don't, I just don't know if that's exactly what Jesus is going to be talking about here in the Sermon on the Mount. But then again, it's articulating a new kind of Christianity, not the old kind of Christianity. Now, I will say this, though, that there is a very real sense in which what he is right about is that for many of us, perhaps, kingdom does convey a bit of a wrong idea today. That is, uh, you think about Disney World, you think about the magic kingdom, it's a physical structure with boundaries, you know, it's sort of geopolitical. Um, I guess Disney's geopolitical, I don't know. Uh, but you get that idea of kingdom, you know, city, boundary. When I think more than that, certainly more than that, a lot of the commentators would agree that kingdom language is, is bound up more with the rule and reign of God than it is with physical location. Now, let me just say very quickly that the rule and reign of God in, in no logical way precludes a bounded political geographic kingdom. It just doesn't. Now, that's a, that's a biblical theological issue. It's not a logical issue. So I'm, I'm not saying one way or the other what I think about you know, physical manifestation of kingdom uh, or what time period that will be or where it will be. I'm not getting into those issues except to say from a purely logical perspective, understanding kingdom in terms of rule and reign has absolutely nothing to do with physical location from where that rule and reign can be conducted. Okay? That, that's a completely different, separate issue. So Jesus is saying, repent, the kingdom is at hand. Why? Because the king is here. Uh, the ruler is here. The rule and reign of God is here because the ruler, the one who reigns, is here. That's how he can make this announcement. Well, in older, strong dispensational circles, of course, uh, this is the law or the message given, uh, offered to the Jews. This is the message of an offered kingdom which is rejected so that it doesn't directly apply in the life of the church uh, today. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm sure there are people who still hold that very rigid view today. Uh, certainly not as many as used to. Okay? So this is uh, a bit of a straw man. You know, if your only understanding of uh, dispensational views of the Sermon on the Mount runs that way, uh, I think that there's been a lot of movement uh, since then. It's common to say that Jesus is intensifying the law, you know, I, I'm not sure, I, I want to take this with a grain of salt, and I want to do my best to understand what's being said. 
I'm honestly not sure that it's, in, that it's really intelligible to talk about intensifying the law. I don't even know if that's a coherent concept. And, and the reason I say that is this. Whenever our politicians, seems to me, talk about getting tough on crime, they talk about intensifying the law. But intensifying the law means, in those instances, more rigorous enforcement of existing laws or intensifying the penalties attached to breaking the law. But that is not intensifying the law. It's intensifying enforcement or intensifying penalty for breaking law. The only way you can intensify law is to add new laws. You can't intensify existing law. You can only intensify penalties attached to it. And so if we're going to say that Jesus is intensifying the law, it would seem to be that at a minimum you must say that if Jesus is intensifying the law, Jesus is adding to the law. At a minimum, he is giving new law. That's the only way I can see that intensification language actually makes sense. If it's the law that he's intensifying rather than the penalties associated with breaking commands. I'm, I'm, not, I, I, I'm not sure about that. I haven't thought through that enough, and I don't know anything about the legal system, so that might not be true at all. It just seems to me that that would be the case. Other people, of course, believe that Jesus is just expositing the law, uh, giving the true meaning of Mosaic legislation, clearing away scribal accretions and wrong tradition. If that's the case, I, I do have to confess, I find it odd that Jesus doesn't just say then something along the lines of, you have heard that it was said, but this is what the law actually meant. Because if all you're doing is expositing the law, or if all you're doing is trying to show people that what they've heard about the law is a wrong interpretation, then you would, all you would have to do is say, this is what's wrong with the interpretation. This is what the law said. This is what the law actually meant. But that's not what he does. He, again, as we saw in the first session, he speaks in the first person. You have heard it said... But I say unto you, it's completely different from just expositing the true meaning of the law you think people are misinterpreting. That's not the way that you would approach it. Not only that, but I think that when people talk about everything Jesus saying in the Sermon on the Mount being the true meaning of the Mosaic legislation, as if the Mosaic law actually really entailed all of these things, or the Ten Commandments really entailed all of these things, I have to admit that, again, just like intensifying the law, I don't think that that's an intelligible way of understanding how law actually works. Law, external law, sets up boundary markers. Okay? It sets up boundaries that you cannot go past. Now, if I set up a fence 100 feet from the edge of a cliff, that fence precludes you from going within 50 feet of the fence, or 50 feet of the cliff, right? If it's 100 feet back, then, and that's where you have to stop, then you can't get within 50 feet of the cliff or 20 feet of the cliff. That's, that boundary does that. But what that boundary does not do is entail that you can't get within 150 feet of the cliff, right? Those entailments just aren't there. External laws stop external behavior at a designated point, and you can go up to that point without violating the law. 
So the question is, with what Jesus then teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, is he just showing you where you couldn't go on the far side of the fence closest to the cliff? Or is he actually making the law more restrictive? Is he moving the fence back more personally? And I think it's clear that if all he's doing is expositing the law, everything that he says must literally be ruled out by the letter of the commandments given. To use a moral example, if I say that rape is immoral, that does not preclude by definition fornication. You can you can have uh, sort of you can have uh, well, what's the word uh, that separates uh, this is it's, you know it's terrible when you get old. <laughs> Sometimes you want to go this way and your mind goes that way. It, it's just like the old lady who was stopped for speeding, and 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 the officer said. Ma'am, where are you going in such a hurry? And she said, well, I want to get there before I forget. You know, ever since I, I zoomed into my 30s, I've been struggling with this. And yeah. And I've really found that, you know, there are, there are two things that happen when you get old. You know, your memory starts to go and... Okay. Um, so anyway, that was just a seniors moment. I think that's what we call them, right? Seniors moment. <laughs> uh, the reality is, uh, rape is forced. Okay. And so if pe- two people decide together that they're going to have sexual relations, the fact that you have a law which forbids rape simply does not speak to that. But if you have a law which forbids fornication, that also forbids rape, right? And the question is, what is Jesus doing here? Which way is the fence going? And I don't think you can in any way argue coherently that when the Ten Commandments say you cannot commit adultery, lusting for a woman is on the cliff side of the fence. It's not. It's not. Forbidding lust forbids adultery. Forbidding adultery does not forbid lust. It's just the way law functions. And so I think when people talk about Jesus just expositing what Moses really meant, I just don't think it's intelligible. I don't think that's the way the law works. It's the wrong side of the boundary. Not to mention, I can't imagine anyone, you know, thinking that lex talionis. You've heard that it was said eye for eye. That what Moses really meant was, go the extra mile. (laughs) Isn't that what Jesus says? You've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I tell you, you're sued for your cloak, give your undershirt. Your enemy forced you to go one mile, go with them too. I don't think there was any judge in Israel who was reading Lex Talianos going, you know, eye for eye really means go the extra mile. This is not what it meant. This is not what it meant at all. Murder and anger. Which side of the fence is anger on? It's on clearly this side. So that's just the way that Jesus is moving the boundary. So he's not expositing 
the law. It's just not the way that things are. Well, there's a, sort of a, a new idea. There's a whole new paradigm for interpreting the Sermon on the Mount, which I think, I suspect, might become more popular uh, in the future. It's hard to tell. Uh, it's N.T. Wright's treatment of the Sermon on the Mount in Jesus and the Victory of God, you know, the second volume of his three big volumes. And, and the reason that I'm not convinced it's actually going to become more popular, because it's about in the middle of a 600-page book. And, and so, you know, it's, it's one thing to talk about justification when that's on the web, but to actually read all of that material in the second volume of his book, that's going to require an awful lot of work. You know, so I'm not sure how popular this is going to get. But what N.T. Wright does is he says, applying his whole overarching paradigm of Jesus being the fulfillment and embodiment of Israel. He says, listen, one of the things that you need to understand, if you're going to understand the Gospels correctly, is that the Jews still saw themselves in Jesus' day as being in exile. The Babylonian exile is not over. They have been returned, they are back in the land, but they're still in exile. In fact, every time they see that they are uh, oppressed by their Roman overlords, it is a clear sign to them that the exile still goes on. They're in the land now, but they have no authority and they have no power. And so it's a continuing sign that God has forsaken them, they're still in the exile. Jesus is going to come as the true Israel, and he is going to bring the exile to an end by finally bearing the full wrath of God. That is, Jesus, in being hung on a tree, is the one who is going to bear the curse of the covenant. And when Jesus, as the true Israel, bears the curse of the covenant, the exile will end. He is the one who is going to bring Israel's history to an end. And so what Jesus is doing here is he is calling people, Wright would say, to live in the kingdom that he is bringing in. This is going to entail uh, repentance, and repentance is to be construed in terms of allegiance to Jesus. Yes, it is saying so. It is, it is feeling badly for sin. Yes, it is for uh, confessing sin. But it is confessing sin and combining that confession with allegiance to Jesus Christ himself. That is how you're going to be in the kingdom. So when Jesus then speaks in the Sermon on the Mount about the kingdom, it's not what Brian McLaren thinks. You know, and it's not what a lot of the other options are saying. It's Jesus explaining to the, his hearers what it will mean to be true Israel in the period that brings the exile to an end. Thus, Wright will argue that Jesus is not just a moral reformer. The Sermon on the Mount is not just a moral code. It is not just a system of ethics for which we are, from which we are to uh, glean ways to obey. It is an eschatological call, he says, and, it's eschatol and eschatology, he says, is not to be understood in terms of the end of the world. Eschatology is to be understood in terms of renewal in this age for Israel. That's how people would have understood the kingdom language when Jesus is teaching and in Jesus' day. Ethics, then, are going to be the way of living which is appropriate to show your covenant loyalty in this new kingdom 
system. So the marks of behavior are types uh, that demonstrate covenant loyalty. Those who are committed to Jesus and to his kingdom will show their allegiance by the way they act. Because that's what's going on here in the Sermon on the Mount. He unfolds it this way. It's in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says, listen, the Israelites are longing for the kingdom, and they will fight for it. It is nationalistic, zealot violence. And Jesus says, the kingdom doesn't belong to those who fight. The kingdom belongs to those who are poor in spirit. Israel longs to make her enemies mourn. But rather than making her enemies mourn, God is going to comfort Israel. Israel longs to inherit the earth. But they must do it Jesus' way. Israel wants justice, but what they really want is vengeance on their enemies. But justice comes through mercy. Israel longs to see God, but this can only come to those who are pure in heart. Israel is is called God's son, but they must copy their father and make peace. They must be peacemakers, not fighters. And if you live that way, persecution is going to inevitably follow. This is what makes sense of verses 13 through 16 in chapter 5. Israel is the light to the nations. Verses 17 through 20, Jesus comes along and he says, Israel, this is how you are supposed to live in the kingdom. And my way is the right way because I'm the one who fully understands and fulfills and interprets the law and the prophets. I show that my way of doing things is in perfect continuity with the law and the prophets. He then takes the I say unto you section to mean instead of the Pharisees' approach to obedience, which was multiply external laws and regulations, Jesus, all he is doing, this is actually, it's a pretty big all, you know, but all that Jesus is doing here is he's showing the Pharisees' approach to pleasing God was exactly dead wrong in exactly the wrong direction. The Pharisees multiply external boundary lines, but Jesus to show what it means to live in the kingdom doesn't set up more external fences. In fact, he doesn't look externally at all. He reverses the direction and looks internally, challenging the heart, the motive, and the mind. Verse, chapter 5, verse 39, the word resist is used and writes as, you know, the word resist in this verse is almost a technical word uh, for revolutionary military resistance, the sort of thing that you had with the zealot movement. And so if we want to be living in Jesus' kingdom, doing things his way, we must not fight. We must not resist our enemy. We must turn the other cheek. We must bless them the same way that God has the sun and the rain fall on the just and the unjust. We must be like God. Chapter 6, formulaic religion. You know, don't worry about the things of earth. Just follow God. Chapter 7, the way forward is not to judge the Gentiles. You don't need everything that you think you need, but you need to ask God to give you what you need. And then, right, says, because Jesus is an is eschatological prophet, although he's more than that, he also warns about false teachers, false prophets. Don't follow them, follow me. Lots of people will tell you, this is the way to bring in the kingdom. But they're wrong. Follow me as I show you the way forward that is pleasing to God, rooted in the Old Testament law and prophets. Any other way of trying to be the true Israel will bring disaster. Well, listen, I mean, there, there's a lot of good stuff in there. Okay? There's, a, there's a lot of true things in there. 
but he's operating from this whole paradigm, part of the the third quest or the new quest for the historical Jesus, which tries to take very seriously, rightly, tries to take very seriously uh, the context, the historical context in which Jesus lived, the historical context in which Jesus taught, uh, the historical, theoretical, philosophical, theological uh, atmosphere in which Jesus taught. Now listen, me saying that it's good to try to take those things seriously as they do doesn't mean that I endorse what they think that context was. But it's right to try to understand those things as well as we can. And then, if, so that's Wright's interpretation. I'm not really going to uh, get into it, uh, but just so you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you start to hear more of these things in generations to come. It takes a while for things to filter down into the church. It, re- it really does. This isn't a criticism. This is just reality. And, and this is one of those things with the prominence of right. This whole paradigm approach to Jesus and to Jesus' teaching, to Jesus' parables. I mean, I mean, Wright finds the return from exile theme in the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's a completely different reading, from, really, from probably anything you've ever read before. And so this will filter down. This will become more and more common. So when it does, you know, you heard it here first, and I feel pretty good about that. So that's Wright's interpretation, but then there is the right interpretation. Amen. Yeah. Poet laureate, yeah. And, and the right interpretation, um, with all humility, is mine. And, and that uh, is the interpretation, which is, of course, endorsed by better thinkers than myself here. It's the New Covenant theology perspective. And I think one of the strengths of the New Covenant theology, uh, again, is that it really does have a very natural biblical way of taking the strengths from different schools of thought and bringing them into a more coherent whole. It's often said, and I think in many cases this is right, it's a general rule, there are all kinds of exceptions, but people are usually right in what they affirm and wrong in what they deny. And it is so true, so often, without following people all the way, you can see elements of truth in their thinking, in their exegesis, in their theology, that sometimes just needs to to be combined with other right things which they reject. We take what's good no matter where it comes from, try to follow the word of God. Of course, the New Covenant interpretation, Jesus, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, and on and on and on. I won't get into that. What I do want to say is this. that when we then approach the Sermon on the Mount, even recognizing the overarching Christian meta-narrative that we looked at in the first session, where we gladly acknowledge that Jesus has full authority, that what Jesus says is right, it is absolutely essential then that we pay very, very careful attention to what Jesus says in this sermon. That's just a, a, a natural corollary to him speaking with all authority. Last summer, uh, I was uh, speaking at a Bible conference up in uh, cottage country in Ontario. It was absolutely beautiful. And I gave uh, a speaking on prayer. And because, you know, I, I, I realized that 
my prayer life is deficient, and so I figured I need to, I need to preach about prayer because if there's, I know there's going to be at least one person there who needs to hear it, you know, and that's going to be me. So I decided to preach on prayer, and I gave two messages on the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, and one of the very interesting things about Matthew chapter 6 is, is prayer is just one illustration that Jesus uses for this principle of not doing your righteous acts publicly to be seen by other people. It's how you give your money. It's how you pray. It's how you fast. Oh, be very careful that you don't do these very good things to be seen by other people, or you will have no reward in heaven. If you try to gain the esteem of people by what you do, God doesn't esteem that at all. And when Jesus begins then about talking about prayer, which is his second illustration of this great principle. It's amazing that he begins by saying, you know, and when you pray, do not. When's the last time, you know, you ever thought, if a young believer comes to me and wants to know about spiritual disciplines, I'm going to teach him or her about prayer, and I'm going to make sure the very first thing I teach them is how not to pray, <laughs> which is what Jesus does. When you pray, do not. There, are, there is a wrong way to pray. You can pray for the wrong reasons. You can pray for the wrong motives. Just because it's prayer, just because it's sincere, doesn't mean that it's good or pleasing to God. There is a wrong way to pray. When you pray, do not pray like this. But when you pray, it's God's name first. When you pray, it's his will first. When you pray, it's his kingdom first. And after you pray for his name and his will and his kingdom then it's the things that we need physically and spiritually, daily bread and forgiveness of sins. And I know there's more in there than that. We don't have time to talk about it. But the reality is, is that in our prayer, I think what Jesus is saying is this isn't the formula but that you're just supposed to pair it repetitiously. But when you pray, you are, you are supposed to be God-centered even in your prayer life. It begins with God, God's will first. And Jesus, in the hardest circumstances of all, teaches about prayer and embodies prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. Let this cup pass by me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. I think then that what Jesus is teaching us in Matthew 6 of the Lord's Prayer, one of the things is that we are to pray for God's will no matter what the cost to me. Your will, not my will. Father, help me to be so centered on your name, your kingdom, your will, that that's my priority, that's my concern, that's my allegiance, no matter what it costs me. So, and I also think that, interestingly enough, is what you absolutely need when people proof text Matthew 7, ask and it will be given to you. Wait, wait a minute. By the time you get to Jesus teaching about prayer here, ask and it will be given, knock and the door will be opened, you're already supposed to know that you pray profoundly God-centered prayers. His will, not your will. And so when you're going to proof text Matthew 7, let's just go back in context to Matthew, Matthew 6 first. Uh, we're going to learn how Jesus taught his disciples to pray, and we're going to use that to understand what Jesus is saying here. We're not just going to lift it out of its context uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. So I preached my little heart out, and it probably wasn't a very good sermon, but I did my best. Two messages on the Lord's Prayer. And a retired pastor came up to me. I have two retired pastors in my congregation. I can tell you that they are the worst. 
No, one of them's here, so that's a, that's public. I was saying, say it to him. No, uh, when I was going to the church, I actually had people warn me. You know, there's two retired pastors in those congregation in that congregation. Pa- retired pastors apparently, in some circles, don't have a very good reputation. We in Madoc are blessed because the two retired pastors that we have are blessings to the congregation, and it is a wonderful thing. I I think. Retired pastors, retired missionaries, I would imagine they can be the greatest blessing or the greatest curse in a church. Depends on how godly the man is. And we are thankful to God for the two godly men that we have uh, in Madoc. But this man came up to me, retired pastor. I want you to know, Steve, I'm a retired pastor. Whenever it starts that way, I don't think what's going to follow is good. Yes, sir. You mentioned uh, the kingdom. Your kingdom come. Yes, yes, I did. And I just want to know, what do you do with Ezekiel 40 through 48? What, um, what do I do with it? What, what do you mean? Well, because, you know, the kingdom, Jesus came and offered the kingdom to the Jews, and they rejected it, and there's going to be a millennium, and the temple's going to be built, so why are you spiritualizing Ezekiel 40 and 48? It's pretty specific, isn't it? And... and now, I will admit, I'm awkward socially at the best of times. You know, small talk, uh, I'm just not good at it. Situations like that, I just don't know what to say. You know, and, and so I just sort of stood there, and, and, he, and he instructed me about the right interpretation of the kingdom, literally in the hall for 15 minutes. And, and one of the things which is interesting, as just an aside, is you, know, you got to Joseph. Joseph is a type of Christ. Because Joseph is betrayed by his brothers, but provides redemption for them. And Joseph marries a Gentile bride, daughters of Pharaoh. Joseph marries a Gentile bride. Jesus marries a Gentile bride. And, and, and I, at that point, I did have to ask. I said, well, well earlier, I'm just trying to understand what I'm supposed to believe here. Earlier, you insisted on a literal hermeneutic. Yes, that's right. Everything needs to be taken literally. Now you're telling me that Joseph's Egyptian wife? Let's, let's use that literal hermeneutic there. And this is the church? I mean, it seems to me there's a bit of, something's wrong between theory and practice. You know, this seems to be a bit of a stretch. I don't even think that's typological. That's allegorical. You know, that, that's not, there's no literal hermeneutic there you know, at all. But we had this conversation, and, and, and I went away, and, and you know, I thought... How can it be that after two 45-minute messages on prayer, I'm being lectured about the temple in Ezekiel? I honestly, in two 45-minute sessions, combined hour and a half, I literally probably spent three or four minutes talking about the kingdom in a way which could not possibly have been taken, I think if you were really rigorous and coherent, I didn't say anything that could have ruled out a full dispensational interpretation. I don't remember saying anything like that at all. But it's loaded for bear. Why, why, what do you do with Joseph marrying the daughter of Egypt? What, I don't, I don't remember Jesus saying, you know, when you pray, remember Joseph marrying a daughter of Egypt. I wasn't talking about that. You know, where, what are we talking about here? But you know what? After being a little bit miffed and having my feathers ruffled a little bit because he didn't understand my brilliance and expositional prowess and 
you know what? I went away and I thought, I do the exact same thing. I hear a sermon about this topic, which I, before God, am, I need help in my prayer life. I'm not saying that this man did, just for myself, I'll use as an example, that I'm, I'm brought to conviction, I need to pray, that this is, this is hitting me, that's right, it comes, I'll use an example that some of you will understand. Apparently, you know, there's some of my colleagues I find out, I couldn't believe it, but some of my colleagues actual, actually uh, have at some point in their life struggled with lust. You know, they've had lustful thoughts. I, I didn't think that was possible. Uh, but, you know, you, you, you have a convicting, I was kidding, uh, you have a convicting sermon about lust. I need to guard my eyes, I need to guard my heart, I need to be honest. And then you get in the you get in the car to go home, and 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 you start to think, well, that guy. He thinks that what Jesus was doing when he was talking about lust is just expositing adultery in Moses. That's not right. And you go home, and all you're doing is patting yourself on the back that your theological system is more accurate than his. Well, what you should be doing is going home before God and repenting and crying out for purification for sin. It's such a tendency of mine to find the little thing you can quibble with and bicker about and feel superior over and deflecting the arrows of the word of God which should be penetrating your heart. And I have to admit, I, 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 I am, again, I don't know if this is, applies to you, I, I am preaching to myself. Are you allowed to, I know you have to lecture at Bunyan. Can you preach at Bunyan? Is that okay? Amen. One person thinks so, so, so I'll, I'll <laughs> preach to you, brother, you and me. I mean, the reality is we are masters of deflecting the truth of the word of God. I hope so-and-so's listening. Maybe I should be listening. And maybe it should be a clear sign to me whenever I think so-and-so should be listening that my sin nature is desperately doing everything it can, last-ditch resort to make sure that I'm not listening to the word of God. Who pleases God more? The person who hears a convicting sermon about lust and who, and who goes home and who's a Presbyterian and who believes that all that Jesus is doing is expositing Moses and they unplug their internet and they cancel their subscription and they repent of their porn. Or the person who believes in New Covenant theology and sovereign grace who goes home hearing that sermon about lust gets in front of their computer and starts watching things they should never set before their eyes. Who pleases God more? Is Jesus the authority? Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. Not therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and understands continuity, discontinuity. Not everyone who, who can you know, perfectly exegete Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Not everyone who understands the antithesis and the salvation historical shift in, in the but I say unto you. You hear these words and you do it. All that in my life and that in, in the lives of New Covenant theologians, we were known as much by our holiness as by our doctrine, you know, by our love for each other, by our genuine humility, as by our particular theological systems and views. Our system can, in, we can use our system to deflect what Jesus is saying on the Sermon on the Mount just as much as we accuse the dispensationalists and the covenant theologians of doing. If Jesus is the authority, then by God's grace, by God's spirit, by God's help, we need to put this into practice. 
1 Corinthians 13, Paul would say, listen, it doesn't matter if you can fully understand every bit of redemptive history in just the right way. If you don't have love, it's not worth anything. Nothing. Now, again, listen, don't get me wrong. In other circles, I would want to argue that we need to uh, take the authority of Jesus seriously. I'm not minimizing any of that. I hope you're not hearing that. Although if you are, that's a perfect example of missing the point on purpose, you know, and how the theological system (laughs) engenders that sort of response. No, we need to be holy. We need to put this into practice. Thanks, I worry sometimes that for me, trying to get the right hermeneutic and trying to get the right theological framework, sometimes trying to get the forest is a way that I can dodge the very clear tree, the very clear teaching of Jesus Christ. And I, I can always move back. I hear something in the sermon. I'm always moving back, always moving back. Look at the forest, look at the forest. Because if I have to look at the tree, if I have to look at the particular, well, that challenges my heart. And that holds me up before God as someone who hasn't fully arrived. We want both. We need the right harmony. We need the right understanding of Jesus' authority. We need that, but we also need the practice. Jesus is our authority. Jesus is the new lawgiver because he gives laws. Laws are to be obeyed. We must not ever say that Jesus is the new lawgiver and it's a kingdom of grace, and so he said this, and I'm just going to... no. If Jesus is the new lawgiver, we need to take that seriously in practice. One of the hardest verses for me is in the book of James. And it's hard because it's the clearest verse in all the Bible. Do what it says. (laughs) Don't be hearers only, but be doers. Do what it says. Now, I wish there was half a dozen scholarly interpretations about what that means so I could find a way. No, just do what it says. It's not that complicated. I know some of you know Stephen Wellam, a professor of theology at Southern Baptist uh, in Louisville. His brother, Kirk, was my pastor when I was growing up. Kirk's now a professor and principal at Toronto Baptist Seminary where where I teach uh, philosophy courses. And uh, one of the things that Kirk said, just an offhanded comment a year ago, I've never forgotten he said, you know, I think one day we're going to get to heaven and, and we're going to stand talking to Paul. And Paul's going to say, you know what, guys? It wasn't that hard. <laughs> it wasn't that complicated. Oh, sometimes we want to make it complicated. But for me, the hardest texts in Scripture are the ones which are as, cl- are as clear as crystal. One meaning only. Transparently, it means this. It's just hard to do it. It shows me up because it's so clear. It's so clear. Do what it says. Warren Wearsby. I mean, and I use him purposely because I realize there may be some differences, but what he says here is excellent. Speaking about James, do what it says. He says, We Christians enjoy substituting reading for doing or even talking for doing. I read that and I said, I wish it wasn't the case, but that is me. Substitute reading for doing. Substitute talking for doing. Oh, by God's grace, we would read, we would talk, we would think, and we would do. He is our authority. Authority in theory, 
may by God's grace we go forward in the Holy Spirit and show that New Covenant theologians are known by their by obedience to the moral authority of Jesus Christ. There are some folks here with us that might benefit from a very brief uh, presentation of the the main different viewpoints of the Sermon on the Mount dispensationally because they haven't been dispensational. So, okay. Yeah. Uh, this is an awkward question because I, I explicitly said that I wasn't the right person in the room to answer. And, and let me let me let me be honest. You know, uh, I don't I don't quite know what to do. Um, no, and, and to be to be you know very postmodern, you know, Brian McLaren says that we don't we shouldn't do question and answer. We should do question and response because we're not giving answers. We're just responding. You know, we're not authorities when we when we give answers. Yeah, it's not that complicated. No, this is. Um, (laughs) The reality is, I mean, if you took my age and added it to Blake's age, you would come up with a number which is less than the years that John Riesinger has been faithfully preaching. And so I'd say that we would probably all like John Riesinger to answer that question (laughs) rather than me. But I'll give it a quick shot. Okay, uh, dispensationalism, and again, th- this is almost one of those things where I, I don't know if this is true, but, but in Canada, in, in the circles that I'm in anyway, I, I just don't know many people who are sort of old-line Schofield dispensationalists. Now, now that might be a, a bigger thing in, in certain parts of the, of the states here or in different parts of the world. But frankly, where I'm coming from, I, I want to say that I'm leery of just speaking about dispensationalism uh, as if it's sort of one organic uh, system. I, I, I would almost say that it, it's pluralized. There's dispensationalisms. You know, there, there's old dispensationalism, there's progressive dispensationalism, and I'm not an expert in any of them. Uh, the main view, though, is my understanding, and certainly willing to be corrected, is that old-line dispensationalism said that when Jesus came and gave the Sermon on the Mount, he's giving the ethic of the kingdom of heaven. But this kingdom is for the Jews. He's offering the Jews this kingdom, and this is the ethic of that kingdom. But they reject the kingdom by rejecting him. In other words, they reject the king. And so in rejecting the kingdom... The kingdom is for a future time now. And this ethic, which is to govern that kingdom, then also is sort of suspended or postponed. It's, it's, it's so bound up with that kingdom that if that kingdom isn't here, this does not directly apply. The language of direct application is used. Okay? Now, even by the time you get to uh, Charles Ryrie, the dispensationalists are saying, right near the end, near the end of his career, is saying, no, this does apply to Christians, and, and you, so you start to get this differentiation between uh, direct application and saying, well, it doesn't apply directly, and then you start saying, well, it does apply. You you lose that direct indirect vocabulary, um, but it's a lot of times still it's still sort of implicit. It's almost still as if it applies, but indirectly. You know, it's still over there, but because we can look at this and say, this is what Jesus expects people in the kingdom to be like, you know, even if we're not in that kingdom, well, we should still 
live like this. This is a good ethical system. So we're learning from it. We're learning from what Jesus expects in that state to inform how we're living today. But it's still a bit indirect, okay? I, and then moving on from there, though, uh, other dispensationalists would, would really say, no, this is, this is for that kingdom. This is for today. You know, it, it's really, I think there's a lot more variety in dispensationalism than there used to be. But having said that, let me just add the footnote that that response comes out of sheer and pure ignorance. He asked, come to the microphone. He, he asked, for those who aren't familiar with dispensationalism, what dispensationalists think, what the approach of dispensationalists is for the Sermon on the Mount. Was that the question? It was an example. Yeah, and, and, and how was the answer? He gave me, it was good. As far as it went. As far as it went. Just a second. No, let me let me answer it again. <laughs> David L. Turner has just written an excellent article in the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society. I'm not sure if it's the, this issue or the issue before, but just in the last few months. And it deals actually with um, dispensational interpretations of the Sermon on the Mount. And he shows how, those, how dispensations have changed over time in their interpretation on the Sermon on the Mount. And you know, this is, this is a kicker. Because I was, um, I was finalizing my dissertation, I was in the University of St. Paul's in Ottawa, and, so, and, and I have to, uh, my dissertation is in with Reformed Apologetic Method and, and the Inerrancy of Scripture and the Historical Doctrine of the Resurrection. And so I'm working through this, and one of the readers wants me to go and research the debate between Ernst Troltz and Wolfhart Pannenberg. Well, that's a joyous day. You know, so you're in the, you're in the library, you're surrounded by all these books by Troltz and Pannenberg, and, and it's actually very interesting. It's, so it's good. It, it was helpful for the dissertation. I'm working through that. And, and, and I'm walking out for lunch, and, and I pass, they have, you know, hundreds of journals there. And I pass the journal of the Evangelical Theological Society, and I see this article by David Turner. And I say to myself, you're going to the Bunyan Conference to speak on the Sermon on the Mount, you should probably read that article. And I didn't. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> no, I... <laughs> but you should. <laughs> no, I, I... I read the abstract and skimmed it. It is very good. He shows, he shows how um, there is, you know, there's a movement from Schofield uh, through Walverd, through uh, Ryrie, and into today. So it really is very good. And he actually shows how, um, from sort of the corpus of writings from Walverd particularly, there's sort of an oscillation. There, there, there's, he's saying sometimes it doesn't apply. In a systematic theology, there's other places where it does apply. And so it just seems like he's saying, especially for Walter, just this waffling back and forth where there doesn't seem to be a consistent position taken. And so I would highly recommend um, from the minute and a half that I looked at it, I think that's probably the best resource today on that issue. 
Not the recent issues, no. You have to be a member. Um, if you, you, can, you can buy one-offs. That is, you can buy journals directly, one issue of a journal without being a member. Okay? Now, it's not cost-efficient to do it that way if you want all the journals, right? But if you just want one journal that has one particular issue, you can just put in a request and you have to buy that journal and pay shipping and handling. But you can definitely get it. Um, also, if you live anywhere near an evangelical seminary, in my very limited perspective, um, a solidly conservative evangelical seminary is likely to have at least three journals, uh, Bibsack, WTJ, and Jets. So I wouldn't think it would be hard to find. The University of St. Paul has one in Ottawa. I know that for sure. Pardon? Yeah, and it's a Catholic university. It's a phenomenal, has a phenomenal theological library. Well, in all seriousness then, I wasn't sure at the end um, of the last session where I was trying to gear up. I really didn't know if question and answer would fall naturally after that either. And so what I don't want to do is I also don't want sort of the frivolity of my own inability to answer questions to derail the fact that I want us to remember that we do need to put these things into practice. And I don't want to take that very seriously. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, I just, um, since you elicited a comment, I just wanted to say that for me, the most important thing is what is the, mo the, the real motivation for defeating sin, you know? And the, the question came up last night, a bunch of us were talking, and the, and the question was, well, what, what motivates sin? You know, are you motivated to not sin because you love Jesus Christ? Or are you motivated to not sin because you, you read the sermon and are petrified that you might not make it? Yeah. And so how do you exhort, you know, the Christian? Because the, the, the whole fear is that we would not fall into illegalism. And so how do you apply that? to your heart, and how should we apply that to our hearts mm. with a full under understanding of grace, a full understanding of what it means to be elect? Yeah. And how, do you, how, do you, how do you put that together? Yeah, that's a good comment and a good question. There are twice, two times uh, in my life that I really see, I mean, seriously thought I was going to resign and leave the ministry. Um, I mean, not the sort of thing that I think after every sermon on Sunday, you know, but really, like seriously, an extended period of time of struggling and thinking, this isn't for me. One was when I was at Fairview uh, with Les, when I, was his, when I was a youth guy, and I was going to speak at a youth Bible conference, and I was on the book of James, I was assigned James chapter 3. Now, many of you should presume to be teachers, right? More judgment. And that's connected organically to our speech. I started taking an index of my life, how I talk to my wife, how I talk to my friends, how I talk to people on the road, and all of a sudden, I, I'm a little bit worried, right? And I'm working through these things, and I don't know, you might not remember this, but I go into your office and I say, Les, you know, I, I don't know if, if this is for me, and I'm struggling through these things. Do you remember that? Vaguely. Vaguely, yeah. Yeah. Well, I remember very clearly what Les said. 
Les said, okay. Well, you have work to do, so why don't you get on with it? Great advice. Yeah, thanks. No, he did. That's what he said. Get back to work. No, it was good advice. No, and he said, no. He said, you know, Charles Spurgeon struggled with these things, Steve. People struggle. Struggle with sin. Struggle with your own heart. And there's a sense in which, you know, if you think that, that you can be here because you're so great, then you really better quit. <laughs> you know, that's when you really need to pack it in. And, and, and so I said, yeah, we, we do struggle through these things. You know, but there, you have to get to work, too. If God's called you this, you work it out. Don't quit. Keep going. I think that was actually very good advice. Another time that I, I really thought about quitting was a year ago. Really seriously thought, I'm going to leave. I, I'm not just going to go to a different church. I, I'm going to walk away from ministry. And it was because that's when I was working through the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm looking at what Jesus is teaching. And I'm looking at my own heart. And I'm looking at my own life. And I'm, I'm, just, I, I'm just convicted every Sunday. You know, and, and <laughs> working through this passage week after week, I'm sitting in my office just feeling the weight of sin in my life. And, and, and I just thought, I, I, I can't do this. It is so hypocritical for me to get up and preach. And, you know, I guess all that I can do, and, you know, I, I <laughs> tear up and cry sometimes when I'm preaching, and, you know, and, and I try to be somewhat honest and transparent. I, I, I try to tell people, listen, I'm not preaching to you. I'm preaching to me. You know, this isn't your, this is me. This is my heart. And I guess one of the things that, that I try to do is I just try to show people, listen, the pastor of the church, he struggles with these things too. We, str- we struggle, guys. We're not perfect. We're, we're not there. We're not there. And so we just open that up. And, 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 but I honestly think, though, it's, it's amazing that when we do recognize that we're under grace, it is the grace of God that breaks the power of sin, not law. Amen. And, and I remember, actually, near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it just dawned on me, and this is how, you know, how qualified I'm to be a pastor, but it dawns on me that I am not living up to this at all. But there's a sense in which I'm not supposed to in my own strength. (laughs) I don't read through the Sermon on the Mount as a checklist and say, I got that, I got that, I got that, I got that. Hey, I'm pretty good. I read through the Sermon on the Mount and I get to the end and I say, Jesus, you have authority. Then I'm so thankful that we work through all the authority Jesus has and we end up in Matthew 9. He has authority to forgive a sinner like me. By his grace, by his Holy Spirit, he will work through this to show me my sin so he can make me holier because of his grace. He's trying to, he's, I don't know, I, I think we just need to be honest and open and transparent with each other. We need to admit that we are sinful, sometimes in specific and particular ways, but we must not stop then and say, hey, I'm a sinner, we're all sinners, we all, none of us live up to it, so let's just accept ourselves. No, we don't live up to it, so let's get pure. We don't live up to it, so let's be conformed more to the image of Jesus Christ. We don't live up to it, so let's not look at this as law ethics. Let's look at this as an ethic 
that God, by his grace and Holy Spirit, will forgive us for failing against, but will help us fulfill so that at the end of our life we're holier than we were before. Amen. I don't know. And, and to be honest, there's a different question. There's a theoretical question. There's an existential question. Because we have the theory, but in our hearts, man, we struggle. We struggle. We struggle. And sometimes we just need to be told it's okay to struggle. Steve, you're struggling. Doesn't mean you need to quit. Work through it. Grow. Confess. Repent. Work. You have a job to do. I don't know. We grow. We push on and we grow. One of the challenges, of course, and, and you learn over time, of course, is that grace living is a bit messy. It's not nice and neat and tidy like some people try and make sanctification and ethics and so on. It's, it's messy stuff. But, you know, Steve's comments, especially these latest ones, I think are helpful in understanding that. And I would encourage you to think through some of that tomorrow. Uh, as you notice, tomorrow's schedule, uh, we have two in the morning. Steve will be speaking, and I'll be speaking at the, just before lunch. Uh, my title has changed all over the place. But we're going to look at uh, some practical implications of New Covenant Theology. And I do want to give some time there. There's not a question Q&A time there, but to encourage some of these interactions. In other words, one of my concerns is I'll try to highlight tomorrow is how do we take the theory and of newcomer theology and the biblical injunctions and put it into practice in our daily lives as pastors, as individuals, how does it shape and mold us? And so I'm looking forward to hearing from some of you as to how you offer some suggestions and ways in which this starts to, as we say, the rubber meets the road and we take it to that level because that's where we want our ministries to be shaped. So appreciate Steve's comments. And-